Have you ever been to a cemetery and have you ever looked around and you see the different tombstones and you see that there's different messages written on those tombstones? We see some people died very young. We see other people. We see husbands and wives who are buried next to each other. Sometimes we see these really, if you've ever been to like a really old graveyard, you see the gravestones. They're really, really old. And maybe you wonder what it was like to live during that time. And the thing you will notice about every gravestone, every tombstone, is on every tombstone there contains two dates. The day you were born and the day that you died, the date of your death. And in between those two dates, there's a tiny little dash. And here's what I know about that tiny little dash. The whole of your life is going to come down to that tiny little dash. And an important question to ask is this. What will your dash be? Another question we could ask is, what makes a great dash? And that, my friends, I think, is the most important question, the greatest question we could ever ask. What's, what are we going to do with our lives? Now, I've reflected on my life over the past you know, few days preparing for this, and, and I think about the more defining moments of my life, and I see that there have been good times and there have bad times, and oftentimes it's hard to own up to some of the experiences that have shaped me. Oftentimes, I only want to remember the things that seem positive or really good, things that would impress my wife or my parents or my peers or my friends. But to be honest, there's also a darker side of me Things that have affected me, things that have affected who I am and how I treat people in the world, such as pride and anger and jealousy and envy, uh, broken relationships. I have those in my past. And when I look back on my life, I feel happy. I feel very grateful, but I also feel sad. I feel sometimes I feel a sense of regret. There's moments of beauty and surprise, and then there's uh, moments of regret. And I conclude that even though I like my life, there's still a lot of things I need to know about living the good life and what makes a great life. And if you're like me, you may struggle. You may, may struggle with what it means to live well. And I want to take a, this time to just talk about like the, the, that we all feel this, that there is a certain, there are certain moments where we feel like we want them to make sense. We want our lives to make sense as a result of them. And so we consider um, what our life is about. And, we, and so if I was to ask you, what is your life about? If you were to tell the story of your life, what would it be? What would people say about your life? Well, there's an author of a book called A Guide to the Good Life. Uh, and it's, the author's name is William Irvine. And he explains that even though we may have the best intentions, some of us are susceptible to misliving. The idea of misliving. And here's what he says. I'm going to read this quote to you. It says, there is a danger that you will mislive. That despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. And instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various babbles life has to offer. Now, I just had a birthday on December the 28th. I am getting older. I know I'm getting older because I can count. But I know I'm getting older because I can feel it. I feel it. I live it. But I have also found that, I'm, that as the older I get, I am more surprised at how life turns out for people. Some of the people around me have experienced unexpected turns. 
in their life. And maybe you've experienced people that have experienced these things too. Maybe there was a divorce or abuse or heartache or greed or materialism or any of the number of ways that we can mislive, the ways that are easy to recognize and point out in other people, but maybe they're not so inter- we're not able to point them out in ourselves. And you see, the things in life that often disrupt us, the things that seem to come out of nowhere, or they come so subtly over time that we don't recognize a little change here or a little change there. These are the things that end up shaping our story in the long run. And as a Christian, and as Christians, I believe that our life isn't just about being good or having perfect theology. It's not about being religious and doing everything right. One of the core beliefs of Christianity is that life with Jesus, having a relationship with Jesus, is about living well. And I'm not talking about like you're going to have a bunch of money or you're going to be prosperous, but living well is a key hallmark of someone who claims to have life with Jesus. And it's about learning to live the way of Jesus in a way that produces the kind of spiritual fruit and emotional maturity that we want to see in our lives about what we're going to see more of in the future. So my favorite op-ed author for the New York Times, um, his name is David Brooks. He actually wrote one of my favorite books of all time, which is called The Road to Character. And if you're looking for a book to read, uh, regardless of like what you think about David Brooks, this is a great book to read. It's about character. And he actually pontificates about what we should think about and consider uh, and have me what we think about what the meaning of life should be. And so he casts a vision about how you should fill the little dash in your life. And here's what he says. He says, you follow your desires wherever they take you, and you approve of yourself so long as you are not obviously hurting anyone else. You figure that if the people around you seem to like you, you must be good enough. In the process, you end up slowly turning yourself into something a little less impressive than you had originally hoped. A humiliating gap opens up between your actual self and your desired self. Now, to me, I find that to be true. And if I'm being honest, and if you're being honest, each of us has experienced the tension of this gap. And over time, and as we gather experiences, we're going to begin to see that how we live from day to day, our patterns in our life, how we spend our money, how we treat people, how we live from day to day, our routines, those are the actual indicators that show us what we truly believe about life, about God, about spirituality, about the good life, everything. And everything else, our theories, our philosophies about the way the world should work, our opinions about Washington, D.C., our rants on social media about what needs to change in our world, our axioms, even our doctrinal statements of faith, these things are all just talk. But it's our daily patterns that really show us what we're made of and what we actually believe. And so this Sunday, and for the next eight weeks, we're going to dive into this subject. It's the idea of the good life. What is it and how can we live it? And each week we're going to compare and contrast different ways that the good life can be lived. And so today is an introduction. Uh, in the coming weeks, uh, January, like next week, we're going to be talking about comparison. We're going to be talking about pride and humility. If you look on January 27th, we're going to be talking about a life of compassion, competition versus compassion with special guest Nikki Meekins. Will be come on. So yeah, we believe we, uh, women can teach here too. We just haven't had one do it yet. So hey, <laughs> the cries of the people have been coming to my ears and I agree. We're going to throw my wife up there. So we'll all clap her. We'll go, yeah, it was good. So that's going to be great. 
I'm really excited for her to do it. She's super competitive, uh, like so competitive. So she, this, she's an expert in this topic. Uh, and we're going to be talking about, yeah, so we're going to talk about a life of presence. We're going to be talking complacency versus passion featuring uh, our very own uh, Jesse Eshelman, who's over here in the front. Yes, yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's going to be so good, Jesse. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then we're going to end with a life of celebration on February 24th. Now, I, I, I believe that as a church, each of us deserves access, the opportunity to experience the good life. And you may be here and you may be starting out in life. You may be in middle age and you're trying to salvage some of your dreams. Or you may be at the end of your life, uh, whether you know it or not. And you may be, <laughs> you may be at the end of what I'm to say. You may be older. You may be at the end of your life. And you may be wondering if there's still hope for you. And what I believe is that God wants to empower you and give you everything that you need to fill your dash with the good stuff of life. And he wants to do so in a way that you're not concerned about misliving, but you're focused on the good things that he has for you. And then you begin to get focused on the good things that he has for other people around you. And you won't be worried about regret. Instead, you'll be learning to live the way of Jesus and you'll be learning to live the good life. So I've called today's talk simply The Good Life. I'm going to pray and invite God's presence, and then we're going to take a look at a few ideas. Okay, so will you pray with me? God, I, uh, I'm so grateful that we get to be here today. And God, I ask that you would come and that your spirit would be felt by people. God, that we would know that you're real in this room, that we would feel you. And God, I ask that you would begin to do a new work in people. You would talk to people about their life, about misliving, about the, the way, the good way of living. You would guide people to a new truth today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the good life, this isn't something I'm just making up here. This is something that Jesus talked about. And we find this in John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. And I'm going to read it to you. You can follow along on the screens or if you have... Uh, a phone with a Bible app, you can follow along there too. But it says this, Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some sort of way, other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And it's that key verse that's really interesting to me, that Jesus came to earth so that people could have life and have it to its fullest amount. Now, if we think about what people in America, and frankly, what people around the world think is the way to a good life, Most people think the way to a good life is the way of stuff, the path of material accumulation. Now, while many of us don't aspire to be billionaires, we all have our idea of what a good life 
or a, a, a healthier, financially well-off life looks like. And maybe we don't want to like be like the you know Forbes richest top ten, but we do in fact want enough money to go on the vacations we want to go on. We want to be able to buy the fancy pants house in the fancy pants neighborhood, and maybe we want the cool car that we like, or maybe we just want enough money to have some sort of financial security. But one question that we should immediately ask, and a question that should immediately come to your mind is this, is the good life only possible for a small percentage of Americans, and frankly, a very, very small percentage of people around the world? When Jesus said in John 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, was he only speaking to the 1%? If accumulating more and more and more is the way to a good life. Are we saying that uh, women who are single mothers who struggle to make ends meet, that the good life is not possible for them? Is the good life not possible for people who may have student debt? Are you shut out from Jesus' offer for the good life if you don't have enough retirement savings, nest egg saved up as you prepare for retirement? Of course not. Of course we aren't saying that. And of course Jesus wasn't saying that. Now, I would think that most of us associate the good life with this idea of feeling content and having general life satisfaction. But when you think through the different times in your life, the times where you felt most satisfied, the times where you felt most content in those moments, do you think it was because you had a lot of stuff? I don't think so. I mean, when Nikki and I were married, we were pretty young. And when we got married... We lived in Ohio, and uh, we didn't make a lot of money, and we didn't have a really cool apartment. And I do remember our first year of marriage. I remember we were in our apartment, and life was good. I was surveying my estate, and I had a, I had a couch that was clean, and I had a cell phone, and I had a coffee maker. I was adulting hard. <laughs> and I thought to myself, who could want any more than this? And the answer was me. I could want more than that because over time, like everyone else, I bought into the American dream. And my lifestyle floated up with our, our, the amount as our, income, uh, our increase in income happened. But honestly, I can't say that I'm happier today because I live in Santa Monica, 20 blocks from the beach, than I am like all those years ago when we're living in a, uh, next to a river in, uh, in Columbus, Ohio. I don't think it, I just, let me just get rid of the myth that material accumulation is the way to a good life. Are the people who are standing in line on Thanksgiving day at Walmart waiting in line for the new 4k television, are they really enjoying life more than the people who don't go out that day and stay home with family and friends? No. Are people who own a minimum of 300 shirts and jackets and shoes and blouses, uh, do they? <laughs> what is a blouse? Do that? Do they? Do they actually have more life satisfaction than the person that has twenty shirts? Is there some minimum number where it's three hundred, and if you have two hundred and ninety-nine shirts, then you're just going to be miserable? But as soon as you get to three hundred, then you're going to be happy. No. Here's the deal: once our basic needs have been met, more doesn't mean better. So what is Jesus actually saying about the good life and having more stuff? Well, his response is the path, the path of true life. Again, in John 10.10, 10, he says this. He says, the thief comes in only to steal, to kill, and destroy. I have come. They may have life and have it to the full. Now, in the Bible, we see that God gives us 
uh, we see that in the Bible, we see that there's two different Greek words for our English word life. The first Greek word is the word bios. Bios is biological life. It's material life. But then there's a second Greek word that John uses repeatedly, especially what we read in John 10. It's zoe, which is spiritual life. And zoe is, what, again, what Jesus used in John 10. Zoe is what Jesus promised to his followers. And we see that zoe is used in John uh, chapter 1, verses 4. It says, in him, that meaning Christ, was life, zoe. And that life, zoe, was the light of all mankind. And what is Jesus saying here by using the word? And why did the writers use the word zoe versus bios? Well, spiritual life, spiritual health can only be found in Christ. And the neglect of zoe, the spiritual life, this is what makes Americans so unhappy. Our culture has trained us to think that if we have more bios, more material life, then we're going to be more satisfied. Bios versus zoe. The marketing and the advertising messages that we constantly hear again and again are just about the material. Every ad on your phone, the ones that get pushed to you when you're on Instagram, especially the ones that know what you're thinking. You didn't speak it out to anyone. You're like, I know that I need new lumbar support. How did you know that? All the ads, all the ads that come to you on your phone, all the ads that you see if you still watch television, and even if you've pull the cable cord and you have Hulu, they require you to watch those commercials still. I don't know how they do it. That is all bios. It is all bios. It's all about your body. It's about feeding your body, pampering, enhancing your body, comforting your body, relaxing your body, improving, exercising your body, clothing your body, strengthening your body. Bios, 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 bios. And the message that we get from marketers, as long as you satisfy your bios, your material life, your biological life, then you will have access to the good life. Yet as we survey Los Angeles, and as we think of the incredible wealth that we live around in West Los Angeles, and especially Santa Monica, what do we find? We find wealthy people who are taking antidepressants. And we see famous, big famous Hollywood people, actors and actresses and producers checking in and out of rehab. What in the world is going on? The Bible tells us over and over again that we need more than bias. We need zoe, which is spiritual life. Jesus says this to us over and over again. You need more than new shoes that have a satisfied life. And the poor need more than food to have a satisfied life. And the wealthy need more than experiences to help beautify themselves, and beautiful and expensive vacations. C.S. Lewis, he's one of my favorite Christian authors. He's an Oxford English professor. He wrote about Zoe in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this. You can follow along on the screen. It says, God created us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gas, and it doesn't run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. God himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That's why it's just no good asking God to make you happy in your own way without having to bother about Christianity. God can't give you happiness and peace apart from himself. There is no such thing. Now, when you think about your life as an engine, 
which I rarely do, but let's just think about it for a minute. Say your life is an engine. The problem with people trying to pour into their life something other than God, this is why the engine fails. So let me ask you a question. What are you pouring into your life, into your engine to fuel your life? Is it Zoe? Is it life from God? Or is it more bios, more material stuff, more stuff, more bios? I'll let you think about that. So uh, if it's not the way of material accumulation, what if it's the way of fame? What if it's the way of becoming somebody really important? Well, again, look with me at John 10.10. At the beginning part, it says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Now, Jesus comes and he speaks in this way. He talks about people that steal and they kill and they take the joy. And you and I know both know that there's a lot of things that can steal life from us. I think of addiction as, a, as an example. There's addiction all around us. There's addiction to alcohol, prescription drugs, illegal drugs, to food. We can get addicted to people's approval, that whether that's like an authority figure or someone we know growing up, or even people we don't know who we want to judge us for some strange reason on Instagram. Whatever it is, we, you know, we can get addicted to people's approval. We can even be addicted to things like shopping. There are lots of thieves and lots of things that steal the good life away from us. But certainly one of those things is the idea of fame. Now, there is a think tank guy in Washington, D.C. His name is Arthur Brooks. He uh, wrote an editorial called Love People, Not Pleasure. And in this uh, uh, editorial, he wrote this. He says, I work in Washington, right in the middle of an intensely public political battles. Bar none, the unhappiest people I have ever met are those most dedicated to their own self-aggrandizement. That means making a name for yourself. Uh, The pundits the TV loudmouths, the media know-it-alls. They build themselves up into making, to make their images, but feel awful most of the time. And friends, that's the problem with fame. Just like drugs and alcohol, you can't live with it, but you can't live without it. You can't live without it either. And celebrities have described fame as like being an animal in a cage or Maybe being a public facade or a Barbie doll, a clay figure, or that boy or that girl on TV. And it affects them. They can't give it up. They need it. They're addicted to it. And perhaps maybe you think Arthur Brooks is overstating the fact. And maybe if you think that if you were able to become famous or if your child was able to become famous, you would, um, you, it would be different for you. You'd be different than what Arthur Brooks is. Well, there's someone who's in your corner. Someone that believes in your dream to get famous, if that's you, his name is Jim Carrey. And Jim Carrey has a wonderful vision for your life. And here's what he says. You can follow along on the screen. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can realize it's not the answer. So Jim Carrey believes in that idea that everyone should just get famous and just see what happens. But he's saying something there, that at the bottom of all the fame and all the fortune, it's not there. There's nothing there. It's not enough. But one of the most distressing statements about fame came from a man who you have all heard of. You've all seen his movies. And he could say, if anyone in this American dream, Hollywood, L.A., he has it all, this would be the guy. And he's certainly one of the top picks of people. And, you know, he's been around so long, we kind of forget how big he is. He's a little older. He's certainly not 
you know, you know, he's not like Ryan Gosling, but like he's been around. Um, and I'm, who am I talking about? I'm talking about Brad Pitt. This guy recently, I mean, he's been, how many times has he been voted sexiest man alive? Uh, he had a beautiful wife. Women love him. Uh, men wanted to be him, I, you know, you know, whatever. But like, listen to what Brad Pitt said in a Rolling Stone interview a few years ago. This is fascinating. He says, man, I know, this is what Brad Pitt sounds like. He sounds like a nasally guy from Ohio. Man, he goes, man, I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us. The car, the condo, our version of success. But if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? If you ask me, I say toss all of this. We got to find something else because all I know is that at this point in time, we're headed for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being, and I don't want that. And so Rolling Stone uh, responds to him, and they ask that he asks this question. So if you're, and this is Rolling Stone speaking, he says, so if you're heading towards this existential dead end in society, what do you think should happen, Mr. Pitt? And Mr. Pitt answers this way. He says, hey man, I don't have those answers yet. The emphasis now is on success and personal gain. I'm sitting in it and I'm telling you, that's not it. I'm the guy who's got everything I know, but I'm telling you, once you've got everything, then you're just left with yourself. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. It doesn't help you to sleep any better and you don't wake up any better because of it. Your bios your stuff, your fame, if you, and I don't know what everybody does. I haven't taken a catalog. I don't have a list somewhere, but I don't know. But if you get everything you want, if you become as famous or as known as you want, whether it's in like if you're working some business desk job and you rise the ranks, if you're actually in the entertainment industry, if you get everything that you want from your career path in Los Angeles, and you become recognized in public or the people you want to recognize you, if they recognize you, it will not provide you with the zoe, the spiritual life, the good life that only God can bring. Now, one of the most common things or common ways that people think that they'll find the good life, uh, it actually comes, uh, it's a philosophy that was named by Berkeley university sociologist, a man by the name of Robert Bela. Maybe you've heard me mention his name before. He called it expressive individualism. What is expressive individualism? What's the way of me? And what is expressive individualism? Well, we communicate expressive individualism every time we say things like, well, it just feels natural to me. Well, I've got to be true to myself. I'm not going to live a lie. Expressive individualism is what you hear at almost every single graduation commencement address. The speaker will say something like, you need to follow your passion. You need to chart your own course. You need to march to the beat of your own drummer. You need to follow your dreams. Find yourself, get in touch with the real you and express that. And then you will discover the good life. Now, the first thing I want to say about this is that there's something right about this. Something very right about figuring out who you are. There's something right about being authentic and not living a lie. There's something right and good about not wanting to conform or to be squeezed into some predetermined mold created by society. And in fact, Jesus encourages us in John 10 that each of us need to live out our individual callings. We need to live according to the wiring that has been put in our bodies and our brains. We are each unique 
And God wants us to live according to that. Just listen to the words of Jesus. We read this before, but he says this in verse three, he says, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all on his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Now, this is really interesting. Maybe that doesn't mean anything to you. Well, let me read to you a passage from a commentary that explains what this means. You probably don't know anything about shepherds. If you're like me, you don't know anything about shepherds. Well, here's what shepherds actually do in this time. Well, the sheep listen to, this is the commentary. The sheep listen to the shepherd's voice that he calls his own sheep presupposes that several flocks, different flocks are in the fold and the shepherd calls out his own. And near Eastern, this is like people in the Middle East, Near Eastern shepherds have been known to stand at different spots outside of the enclosure of where the sheep were, and they would sound out their own particular calls, and the sheep would respond to those unique calls. And they would gather around their particular shepherd. And the shepherd in John 10 goes further. He calls his own sheep by name, which at least he means he calls them individually, and he leads them out. So here's what this all means. The shepherd in Jesus' story knows each of his sheep personally. He calls each of his sheep out by name into their own unique path. And it's the same for us. The good life is not some sort of mass-produced factory life where everyone looks and acts the same. It's not like some furniture you buy at Ikea and assemble it poorly at home. The unique life of Jesus is something unique for you. The good life is individually created. It's shaped by an artist. And what I get from these verses is that you and I, we are one of a kind. There's nobody in the world that is like you. And there will be never anyone in the universe that's like you. There's going to be some similarities because we live in a certain kind of culture, but there is nobody like you. Each of us is unique. Each of us is shaped by God. And so one of the core definitions that we will come back to each week in the Good Life series that we're doing over the next weeks, eight weeks is this. It is the good life is living the life God created you to live. Let me say that again. The good life is living the life God created you to live. So expressive individualism, as highlighted by Robert Bela, this is right. There's something right about it, wanting to have people live authentic lives. Expressive individualism inspires uh, inspires people to live, to follow a unique individual tailored path. And the life God created you to live is going to be different, it's going to be unique, and it's going to be absolutely perfect for you. However, there are limits to expressive individualism. Something goes wrong when it suggests that we are the ones who are responsible to make that life happen. We, are, we go wrong when we say we need to figure out our own individual path. There's something wrong with this. Well, why is there something wrong with this? Well, What's wrong with looking inside of yourself and deciding which path is right for you? If I want to express the real me, who's the real me? That's the problem. Is the real me the me I express on my resume? Is the real me all about the schools I've attended and the degrees I've earned? Is the real me about the places I've worked? Is the real me what I project onto social media? You know, Jesus actually helps us to understand the biggest problem with expressive individualism by telling us a truth about humans. And very lovingly, in the verses we just read, Jesus tells us that to be human is to be a follower. Humans, in one way or another, are sheep. We are all following somebody 
or something. And so either we're following a good shepherd who cares about us and will lead us out on our own individual callings or paths, or we're going to follow a bad shepherd who at the end of the day will rip us off. Expressive individualism, charting your own path, marching to the beat of your own drum. It assumes that we're all free from any kind of cultural influences or any kind of social pressure, that we're all just little perfect islands and that we aren't influenced by any outside forces. Well, we know that this isn't true. The truth is, is that none of us are disconnected from anybody. Human beings are social animals. We live in societies. We live in neighborhoods. We are influenced by the culture that we are in. The fact is there are enormous forces that contribute to and shape the American vision of good, of life, that came to you and that came to me from various different places. These outside forces include your parents, They include our families, they include our friends, they include the media, social media, they include uh, television. And right now, somewhere in Los Angeles, there is a young hotshot, up-and-coming marketing advertising executive who is working with a team of people to write a script, to create a narrative that is designed to convince you and me about the next big thing that we need to have the good life. And so the problem is this. When we look inside ourselves, we're not necessarily finding our true selves, are we? The fact is that much of what we know and much of what we feel are actually inputs from our culture that have shaped us. And so I don't necessarily believe that the good life can be found looking inside and you can't find your true self inside yourself because there's a million different options. There's a million different selves. And even with a basic cultural reflection, we realize that many of the selves and the desires that we have didn't come from ideas that we have on our own. They came from our culture. They were put there by famous people or authority figures or marketing machines, and they exploit us in one way or another. So I believe the good life is found by discovering a human model where you, that you admire, who is trustworthy, and who is worth imitating. And it is finding a shepherd whose voice that you can trust and who is authentic, and who is for you. And friends, what I want to suggest to you today is that Jesus is the best model for someone who lived the good life, the authentic life, the free life, a life of love and of happiness and of contentment. And you and I, I try try it, but you and I will not find a better model other than Jesus Christ, who knows us, each of us by name. He walks before us. He calls us out on our own into each of our individual paths. And as you follow him, you will discover the good life. Amen?